Excuse three. I don't have time. I'm going to assume that lack of time is something every single person listening to this book can identify with. Maybe you're a single parent. Maybe you're a recent college grad working two jobs to survive. Maybe you're an empty nester with a full schedule. The truth is, no matter where you are or which season of life you're in, there's a solid chance that you struggle to find time. Often, there doesn't seem to be time for the things you'd like to have more of in life. Time with your friends, time with your partner, time to get a massage or walk through Target alone for a whole hour without your kids just so you can remember what it's like to shop slowly and hands-free. But it can also be hard to find time for your goal. When are you going to pursue it? Where will you fit it in with your current job or your current life or the current children you have to keep alive? How can you add this to a schedule that already feels overwhelming and too big to carry? Well, sister, here's the truth, and it may or may not surprise you that I've given this answer before, but it remains true. You aren't going to find the time to pursue your goals. You're going to make the time to pursue your goals. And the first thing you're going to need to accept is that you are in control of your schedule. Yes, you, high-level executive. Yes, you, mama of four. Yes, you, college student with 27 events this week. Yes, you, entry-level assistant with a demanding boss. You are in control of your schedule. In fact, there isn't one thing in your life or on your calendar right now that you didn't allow to be there. Let that sink in for a second. Being overscheduled, that's on you. Not finding the time to feed yourself, you. Spending two hours a night watching TV or scrolling Instagram as a way to relax, also your choice. Girl, the question is never, do you have enough time? The question is, how are you using the time you have? It's possible to put yourself through college while being a stay-at-home mom. Women do it all the time. It's possible to train for a half marathon while working full-time. Women do it all the time. It's possible to build your own business at night after you finish working at someone else's company. I did it. Back when I was still a coordinator working in the entertainment industry, I started to fantasize about what it would be like to own my own company. I dreamed about it endlessly. And in the days before Pinterest, I would tear pictures from magazines and store them in a binder for some day. At the time, I worked 50-plus hours a week at my day job, and I had been married less than a year, so there were plenty of things to fill up my weekends. It was fun to watch marathons of Drew Barrymore movies on TBS. It was fun to go to Home Depot and try to remodel our powder room. It was fun to save up for the wagon wheel sampler platter at the Black Angus on date night. And after working all week long, there were few things more enjoyable than hanging out with Dave at home. But as the dream of starting an event planning company began to grow bigger and bigger in my heart, I knew I'd have to give up something. 
Quitting my job and going solo as a new business owner just wasn't possible. We had a little townhouse with a big mortgage that needed to be paid. It took both our salaries to make that happen. I didn't have the money to go out on my own. I didn't have connections or a mentor or potential clients or a hefty savings account. All I had was time and, and here's the key, a willingness to trade that time in pursuit of what I wanted. That's how life works. It's been said that if you want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. For me, that meant I gave up weeknights watching TV with my new husband. I gave up my weekends wandering around bed, bath, and beyond to find a new duvet for the guest room. Instead, I worked. I interned for local wedding planners so I could learn the industry. I traded hundreds of hours on my feet in heels at weddings and movie premieres for knowledge of how I might be able to do this on my own. I worked for a solid year in one of the hardest, most thankless jobs on the planet, event assistant at high-end parties, in addition to my regular working hours and I worked them for free. I never got a nickel for those hours. I traded comfortable weekends at home with Dave for the opportunity to work with demanding clients and abusive event planners in order to learn about the industry I wanted to be part of. Not to put too fine a point on this, but it sucked. Do you think I wasn't tired after my regular job? Do you think I wanted to go run a wedding rehearsal for a bridezilla on a weeknight after putting in 10 hours at the office? Do you think I wanted to miss out on friends' birthday parties and weekends away so I could work a wedding? Do you think it wasn't discouraging to be treated badly when I was working for free? Of course it was. But dude, look where it got me. I used the knowledge I learned that year to launch my own event planning company. I used that event planning company to start my blog. That blog gave me this fan base. And later, that year I spent working for Mean Girl Event Planners gave me the storyline for my first best-selling fiction book, Party Girl. Learning to carve time out of my day back when I first started in business meant that whenever I wanted to commit to something new, I understood that the only thing standing between me and my new goal was a willingness to find the time for it. For instance, when I wanted to write that first book, I started waking up at 5 a.m. in order to push toward my word count before my kids woke up. I learned to write whenever and however I could in order to get to my goal. That tactic still serves me to this day. Right now, I'm editing this chapter on the stairs of an overcrowded gate at the Toronto airport. I've just spent three days doing press and book signings, and I'm exhausted to the marrow of my bones. But I believe in this book, and I want to get it to you as soon as possible which means I'm choosing to sacrifice some rest time in order to make this happen. If I want to achieve any new thing in my life, the question is never, can I do it? The question is always, what am I willing to give up in order to get it? That's what it boils down to. 
Not whether or not you have the time, but whether or not this goal you have is so compelling, so beautiful, so necessary to your future happiness that you're willing to trade your current comfort in order to achieve it. You in? You willing to give up a little of today's rest for tomorrow's possibilities? The first step is to get over the excuse that you don't have the time. The next step is to reconfigure the time you do have in order to achieve the goal you're after. Here's how. One, make a timeline of your current week. You know how when you meet with a nutritionist for the first time, they ask you to keep a food diary for a week so you know every single thing you consume? This is the same idea. You need to account for every single hour in an average week. I want you to list out everything you do. The easiest way is to open a calendar app on your phone and document as you go. Did you go on a run that took 45 minutes? Add it. Did you volunteer at the church bake sale? Add in all the time it took, including getting ready, drive time, etc. Did you spend 58 hours this week playing Candyland with your toddler? We all bow down. That's sainthood work right there. Put it in the calendar. Once you've recorded an entire week, figure out where you have the time to add five hours a week to work on your goal. Don't hyperventilate. Five hours is not actually that much time. That's one hour a day for five days out of seven. That's one three-hour session and less than a handful of 30-minute segments. There are a ton of ways to mix and match this time. The point is that you decide right now that you're committing five hours a week minimum to your goal. If you've hung out with me long enough, you know that I have some daily habits that help me live my best life, which I call Five to Thrive. Well, sister, these five hours are goal-based and have a fun name too, Five to Strive. As in, you're going to commit to five hours a week striving for your goal, minimum. If you've got more time, give it. But at the very least, make a habit of your five hours and stick to it. Two, once you've set your new schedule, treat your five to strive hours as sacred. If I open up your calendar next week, I should see a life that's set up around the things you want to achieve. Let's say you told me, my goal is to get into incredible shape this year because my husband and I have always wanted to run a half marathon together and this is our year. If I open up your schedule right now, will I see three appointments a week to run? When something is sacred, you protect it. Imagine I came to you and said, hey, do you want to meet Chris Hemsworth for coffee at 3 p.m.? You would, of course, say yes, because he's dreamy and he has an accent and you're more than a little curious why Chris even knows who you are. You would put it in your calendar as a non-negotiable because there are so many awesome and exciting things you'll experience with that appointment in your calendar. Then, if all of a sudden someone said, hey, can you pick up the kids at 310? 
I know I said I was going to do it, but I can't now. You wouldn't just agree. You wouldn't just blithely blow off your date because it's Chris freaking Hemsworth. And that scheduled appointment, that promise to yourself, is something you wouldn't give up lightly. Whatever vision you have for your future, it has to be at least as valuable to you as that coffee date with Thor, or whoever your version of Thor is. You have to recognize that your commitment to it will yield just as many awesome and exciting things as a date with a hunky Australian superhero. These five hours are what's in between you and something great. And if you can't commit the time in your schedule to becoming the person you want to be, what are we even doing here? Why are we even trying? Is your schedule populated by things that will make your life better? Or is it dictated by everybody else's wants and needs? Three, make sure your minimum hours are your best hours. I write best and fastest in the morning. I'm more energized than I am later in the day, and I don't have decision fatigue that makes me overthink everything. I can write at night, but it feels like a slog, and it typically takes me twice as long to get the exact same word count. I know this about myself, so I schedule my minimum hours for the mornings. It's not enough to simply make time for the hours. You have to also schedule them for when you've got the mental capacity to do them well. Number four, plan your schedule weekly. You have to. Every Saturday or Sunday, Dave and I sit down together and go through our calendars. We talk about work meetings, our kids' drop-off and pick-up schedules, our workouts, and the time we're planning to go out with friends, and our weekly date night. We also reaffirm our priorities so we both know what's on each other's plates and where we might need some extra support. Life happens, you guys, and your schedule will shift and change. Those sacred hours, they might have to show up at a different time or on a different day from week to week in order for them to make it into your schedule at all. If you wait until midweek to try and find a place for them, the chances are less likely you'll actually get to the thing you know you need to be doing. You can't just plan your calendar at the beginning of the month and expect it to stick. You're not an Android. Schedule at the start of the month and again at the start of each week to make sure you adhere to the plan. You can make the time to pursue your goals, and you have to do it now. Why now? Because if not now, then when? I didn't used to wear makeup. Well, I guess I did wear makeup, but not often and not well. My older sister Christina was and is a makeup aficionado. Her hair was big and blonde, and her eyeshadow was flawless. I should have followed suit, but she's nine years older than me, so I missed the boat on that whole tutorial thing. I suppose that explains why a quick swipe of mascara was the best I could come up with in my teenage years. And unfortunately, acquiring hair or makeup skills is not something magically granted to you on your 18th birthday like the ability to buy lottery tickets. 
All of this to say that just because I was a legal adult didn't mean I was any closer to appearing pulled together. But necessity is the mother of invention, and as the years progress, I managed to work a day face into my routine. A bit of shadow, some liner, a little concealer, and a clear lip gloss became part of the uniform that I put on when I had to go into my office every day. But at night or on a weekend, no way. Makeup or curling my hair was for something special, like a date or a party. The rest of the time, you could find me in yoga pants with my hair in a bun. Then one day, I was planning to meet some friends for dinner, and on my way past the bathroom mirror, I had a moment of pause. I didn't look great, but I didn't want to fuss with getting ready. I thought, is having dinner with my girlfriends enough of a reason to take the time to do my makeup? And almost immediately, I answered my own question: If not now. Then when? I asked my ill-kempt reflection. I was living my entire life waiting for a moment to be special enough for me to look, feel, and act my best. And the truth is, you don't need a special moment or any reason at all to do that. If not now, then when? This saying became my mantra and the answer to a dozen different questions. Should we eat off the nice wedding china or paper plates? Should I dress up for a date with my husband or just wear jeans again? Should I take the time to write a note to a friend, call me mom, papa, bake some cookies for the neighbors? The answer to all of these questions is the same. If not now, then when? You could spend forever planning out your someday when right now, today, this second. This is all you've got. Someday isn't guaranteed, so stop waiting for someday. Someday is a myth. Don't wait to have the time. Start planning to make the time. Excuse four: I'm not enough to succeed. I've talked a lot in my writings and my speaking about my lifelong battle with not feeling good enough. It is one of the topics I get the most notes about, so I know I'm not alone with those insecurities. For many of us, the list of not enough comes in every size and shape. We battle with feelings of lack in almost every major area of our lives. But it's a whole different ball game when we are setting out to achieve something we're unsure we can actually do. The lack of enough in other areas of our lives is hard as it is. I'm not pretty enough to find a spouse. I'm not thin enough to be beautiful. I'm not old enough to pursue that. I'm not young enough to pursue this. We're already grappling with feeling like we're not enough simply in our existence. And now we've got to throw a goal out in front of us. Are the insecurities we feel about regular life supposed to be absent in this area? Of course not. In fact, when we set out to pursue something, we're often dealing with our fear of what we lack multiplied by a factor of nine million. You think you're not fit enough in general, and now you're supposed to run a half marathon? You think you're not smart enough in school, but somehow you're going to build a successful business. 
You think you're not dedicated enough, but you're going to attempt writing a book? And so what happens too often is that you subconsciously decide that you're going to fail before you ever even attempt to succeed. The irony, of course, is that the thing you're attempting to take on might be the exact thing that proves your misconceptions about yourself wrong. If you successfully run the half marathon, it would affect the way you feel about what your body is capable of. If you build an incredible business, it would adjust your beliefs about how smart you are. If you stick with it and finally finish that manuscript, it would prove that you are dedicated. It's a catch-22 because your feelings of not enough keep you from proving to yourself that you are. You haven't yet achieved the things you hope for, and so you decide that you're unable to. Why do we treat only certain areas of our lives this way? When you fall down while trying to learn to walk as a toddler, you don't stay down. You get right back up and try again. The first time you drove a car, you were probably scared and nervous and holding on to the steering wheel with a kung fu grip and a proper placement at 10 and 2. Nowadays, you could likely steer with your left knee while handing a sippy cup to someone in the back seat without missing a single word of the Dora the Explorer soundtrack you've got on repeat for school drop-off. We fail and slip up and screw up and fall down over and over again in our youth, and yet we keep on going. But ask a 37-year-old woman to take up CrossFit for the first time, and she'll immediately start to imagine all of the reasons she'll suck at it. And before she knows it, she's talked herself out of even trying a single time. I think this is because the younger you are, the more failure is expected and the less aware you are of what other people might think if you fall. But girl, the things you're attempting to do now aren't the things you've accomplished before, so they should get toddler status. It's not that you're not enough to cross the finish line. It's that you haven't yet figured out how to run this particular race. But I get it. This is something I have also struggled with. The thing that has hindered me from chasing down one of my biggest goals in life has been the belief that I'm not smart enough to build a big business. Or I guess I should say that I felt like I'm not educated enough. When I admit that, it tends to surprise people. I suppose because I recognized this limiting belief years ago and have since worked hard to shift my perception of myself. You see, anytime we feel lacking, the only way to successfully fight back against that lie is with a truth that makes it irrelevant. I'll admit that I'm uneducated in the traditional sense. I have a high school diploma and one year of acting school. That's it. It wasn't an issue when I was an event planner because people were hiring me for my skill with design and organization. Nobody cared about whether I had an MBA. But over the last handful of years, my company has grown exponentially. And with that exponential growth has come more revenue and expenses. And you guys... I am freaking terrible at math. 
Because it's not an area I felt confident in, I did my best to ignore the financials of my business. The more revenue we brought in, the more I struggled to understand a balance sheet that suddenly resembled the budget intricacies of a small island nation. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It pains me to admit this to you, but a couple of years into this process of building my company, I had barely looked at our books. They overwhelmed me, and I didn't understand what I was looking at. So I hardly even glanced at the financial reports our accountant would run for us. As long as I had enough money to cover payroll and clients were paying their bills on time, I didn't really pay attention. Truthfully, it wasn't laziness or complacency that was driving this decision. It was fear. Every time I looked at a financial statement and didn't understand it, that voice in my head, you know the one, that jerk version of yourself that likes to point out all your flaws, would list out all the things I was deeply worried about. You're not smart enough to run a company at this level. Who do you think you are? These people are trusting you with their livelihoods and you can't even read a balance sheet. You're going to fail. This fear and this circle of self-recrimination went on for years. And then one day, I just got sick of it. I was reading an excellent book on sales and I was super fired up about all these ideas I was gathering about growing our revenue and lowering our overhead. But in order to do those things, I understood that I had to, absolutely had to, get a handle on where we were financially. Immediately, the fear started to creep in. But my excitement over where I wanted to go was greater than my fear. My loud, oaky family has a saying. And that morning, as I was sitting at my desk, it popped into my head. Rach, I said out loud to myself. Either piss or get off the pot. Crude? Absolutely. But sometimes you need to hear your grandpa's straightforward, no-nonsense voice in your head to remind you of who you really are. I was either going to run this business and scale it with courage and determination and faith in myself, or I needed to stop playing at it. My limiting belief was that I wasn't smart enough because I lacked an education in business finances to help me understand. I needed to counteract this limiting belief with a truth that took away its power. The truth I reminded myself of was that I had always figured things out in the past. Always. I'd owned my company for 14 years and had never one time shrunk from a challenge. So what? Now that I was actually becoming successful on a large scale, I was suddenly going to give up? Just because I was unsure? No way. As I started to pump myself up with this truth, I got enough clarity to ask myself a better question. Instead of accepting that I wasn't smart enough, I worked the specific problem in front of me. How could I better understand this? Was there a class I could take? Of course there was. I immediately applied for and got accepted to an online business accounting program through Harvard Business School. The idea, of course, was that if I felt I wasn't smart enough, the antidote to that must be applying for one of the most difficult online programs available for me that day. 
Once I passed that class, I told myself, that would prove to me, nay, to the world, that I was good at numbers. A psychologist would have a field day. Taking that class was an abysmal failure. For one thing, it was freaking expensive. For another, I aced my test and pulled good grades, but it was only because I studied and tested well. Once it was over, I truly had no greater knowledge about any of the concepts than I did when I started. Also, it was hugely time-consuming, which actually made me way more anxious about successfully leading my company because I was spending a good chunk of my day on schoolwork. I'm telling you this part of the story because I think it's a pitfall that many of us make on the road to personal growth of any kind. We identify the problem. We decide that we're going to fix it. We attempt to fix our personal problem by doing something that in no way resembles us personally. It's like Sarah deciding she's going to get in shape and signing up for a series of crazy expensive soul cycle classes. Her sister loves spin class, so there must be something great about it. Never mind that Sarah hates group exercise and that the Soul Cycle Studio is 40 minutes across town. Or maybe it's Megan, who needs to make more money as a single mom, so she decides to take on a side hustle in direct sales. She's not really into the product and is mortified at the idea of selling in front of a crowd, but her best friend has been really successful at it, and she's sure she can be too. Or maybe you're an entrepreneur who dropped out of college because you struggled to learn in a classroom environment. You learned every single thing you know about business on the job through your own research. But when you need that learning the most, you decide that the best thing to do is pursue the one type of learning you absolutely hate. Friends, personal growth is supposed to be personal. It's not one size fits all. It has to be customized to you and the way you learn best or it's never going to stick. Be strict about your goal but flexible in how you get there. Sarah should have committed to putting on her favorite music and training for a race. She loves hip-hop and being outside, so she could have customized her workouts to her personality and achieved real results. Megan should have gotten a job at her favorite local coffee shop. She can pick up extra hours while the kids are with their dad, and she gets to chat with the people who come in and be in an environment she loves. And me? It took me a minute and several thousand dollars in non-refundable tuition, but I eventually recognized that I needed to learn the skill for my business the same way I'd learned every other skill. I ask myself, are there books I could read? Conferences I could attend? Could I hire someone? Could I be more honest about what I did and didn't understand in order to get clarity? The answer to all of these was, of course. Was it easy to learn about a topic I'm not particularly interested in without a clear outline about what to do next? No. Was it comfortable to admit to people that I couldn't understand the financials I'd pretended to comprehend before? Absolutely not. But what was the alternative? My grandpa's voice in my head rang out, louder than my negative self-talk. 
I had always figured it out before. I will always figure it out. So I got to work. I learned the difference between a balance sheet and a P&L in a YouTube video. I went to business conference after business conference and sat down front for every session on accounting, even though it seemed duller to me than watching paint dry. At one such business conference, I happened to take a class by Keith J. Cunningham. I'm listing him by name in case any of you happen to struggle with the same insecurity. Find a way to see him speak live. I have never had someone explain business finances to me as clearly or as simply as he did that day. I literally cried like a baby because I finally understood things I hadn't before. I mean, who in the world sobs over basic accounting principles? Someone who thought she wasn't smart enough to ever comprehend them. That's the craziest part about not feeling like we're enough to achieve our dreams. The only way to prove that you are is to get yourself to the other side of doubt. That's much harder to do if you're following someone else's path. You need to focus on what has worked for you in the past and apply those ideas to this new venture. You also need to believe in your possibility instead of focusing on the probability. Not having the knowledge just makes you teachable, not stupid. Not being in shape just makes you moldable, not lazy. Not having the experience just makes you eager, not ignorant. Flip the script and force yourself to see the positive where you've only seen negative. What are the advantages of not knowing, not understanding, not conquering, not having, not achieving your goals yet? The yet matters. The yet reminds us that we have a whole week, month, life ahead of us to become who we were made to be. You are enough today as you are. Stop beating yourself up for being on the beginning side of yet. No matter what age you are, yet is your potential. Yet is a promise. Yet is what keeps you moving forward. Yet is a gift. And you are enough to get to the other side of it. For me, getting past this limiting belief in myself as an entrepreneur came with acknowledging all the things I had done instead of focusing on the things I hadn't. There's a great exercise for this I learned years ago that I think might be helpful for you if you're doubting whether you can do something. Write a letter to yourself from yourself. More specifically, write from your tenacity. Write from the part of you that never gave up, from the exact opposite place of your fear. Write from your self-assurance. Right from your heart and your gut and the piece of you who always gets what she sets her mind to. When I ask women to do this at our conference, there's always this moment of confusion. But I haven't done anything, they tell me. I don't have anything to write down. Sis, the problem isn't that you aren't accomplished. The problem is that you don't give yourself any credit for the things you have done. You need to write a letter from your truth to extinguish the lies about who you really are. So if you worry that you're overweight or out of shape, 
then write a letter to yourself about all the times in your life when your body was incredible. Did you play sports as a child? Did you carry a baby inside of yourself? Did you grow another human life? Those arms that are too squishy and untoned, how many times have those arms offered love and comfort to other people? How often have those arms helped you care for your family or do your job or create your art? You think your dream is too big, too impossible? Write down all the times you did things nobody thought you could do. I'm going to share with you the very first letter I wrote to myself, and I'll tell you right now that the original letter included a lot of cussing because A, I honestly never planned on anyone listening to it, B, sometimes a well-placed F-bomb can fire me up, and C, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. For today's purposes, I've toned it way down and removed the words that might have this book banned in several countries. The original letter still sits inside the spiral-bound notebook I wrote it in that day. I don't have a date on it, but I know I wrote it in the middle of my struggles with my worst insecurities about whether I was smart enough to grow my business. I wrote to me from my persistence. Dear Rachel, I am your persistence, and this is what I want you to know about me. I am a badass. I was born in pain and fear, and I fought my way out. I graduated early. I moved to a new city. I got a job I was too young to have, and then another, and then another. I built a company that shouldn't have worked, and then another after that. I wrote five books. I'll write even more. I took on foster care and raising five kids. I do stuff that nobody else can do in less time than anyone can believe. I am self-aware. I work hard on myself. I face the stuff again and again and again. I don't give up, not ever. Your fear may be powerful, but there is no defining force greater in your life than me, your persistence. You have 33 years to serve as an example of that. This exercise was so powerful for me at the time because I truly didn't give myself credit for all the things I had done. I needed to remind myself of the truth. I may not have had a formal education, but I did all those things I listed, and I continue to do those things. That is what I want you to do today. That is what I want you to do this weekend, and in three months, I want you to do it again. Then three months after that, I want you to do it again. Every time that fear of not enough shows up for you in whatever stupid way it tends to, I want you to remind yourself of the truth, not the opinion. For most of us, women especially, we hold on to some little nugget, some little lie, some limiting belief that we've had since childhood. We've believed it for so long, we don't even question it anymore. We heard something when we were younger and our feelings were tender. Someone said something, someone spoke into your insecurities about yourself, so you've spent a lifetime questioning yourself and accepting what they said as truth. The crazy thing is, it's not truth. It's an opinion. One plus one equals two is fact. Gravity exists here on earth. Fact. 
Water can extinguish fire. Fact. You being enough of anything? Opinion. Someone else's opinion, or maybe your own, but either way, it is not grounded in any actual reality other than the weight you give it. So, how much of your life are you living, or rather, not living, because you've been treating an opinion as truth? Here's what's so crazy about the idea of enough. Whatever your issues with not believing you are enough, that is the opinion someone else gave you, whether intentional or not, and you have accepted it and made it a doctrine in your life. We never boil it down like that. We never really think, oh, I don't feel like I'm enough because the media told me so, because my aunt said something to me once, because a girl in eighth grade commented on this and that became my reality. Have you ever thought about how ludicrous it is to be living your life, to be making choices, to hold yourself back from your goals, to not try things, to not put yourself out there because of something some random person said to you once upon a time? Whether it came from a voice of authority or a chick on the internet, if you're hesitating because of someone else telling you that you're not enough, You're still living your life and making choices for yourself and subsequently your family based on someone else's opinion. Other people don't get to tell you what you can have. Someone else doesn't get to tell you who you can be. The world doesn't get to decide what you get to try. You are the only one who can make that decision. Here's the flip side of that. You've got to stop blaming your problems on the world. You can't be like, well, I got teased my entire adolescence, so now I'm insecure. Or my parents did these things to me, so now I can't cope. I'm not belittling the trauma we hold from our childhoods. It's so incredibly harmful to walk through trauma, particularly at a time in life when we're so malleable to other people's opinions. But here's the deal. High school's over. Junior high was a long time ago. You are not a little girl anymore, and you cannot keep living your life with a seventh grader's mentality, no matter how painful seventh grade was. You have to decide right now that you're going to take hold of your life, and you are going to let all of that other crap fall away because it doesn't matter. Because whoever said the thing to you, your mom or your sister or the mean girl or the mean boy in high school or whoever it was, they don't get an opinion on your life. They're not in the ring. They're not in the game. They're not the one taking the punches. That's you. It's a simultaneous thing. You can't live your life for their opinions and you also can't keep blaming them. You need to embrace your path. You need to accept that whatever happened did happen and choose to be mindful of the steps that you've got to take now to heal and get past those things. You cannot keep living in the excuses of something that happened 15 or 20 years ago because seriously, how is that working for you? I know there are people right now who are thinking, but you don't know what they did You don't know what I went through. You're right. I don't. But I do know 
that if your past is still affecting your life today in a negative way, holding on to it is not helping you. Does it make you feel better about yourself? Does it make you kinder to people when you live in that state of misery, in the state of, I'm too fat, I'm too thin, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too... How is it making you feel? It's making you feel like crap. Nobody is living in a place of not enough and happy about it. Nobody is inspired and making great choices and enthusiastic and excited for every day while they are living in a state of not enough. The amazing thing is that this is all perception. It's all what you believe to be true, and you get to decide what you believe. If we were girlfriends in real life, I would shake your shoulders and remind you that you get to decide. I am living proof that your past does not determine your future. I am a living, breathing example. I am your friend, Rachel, and I am telling you that I walk through trauma and I walk through pain and I have been bullied and I have felt ugly and unworthy and not enough in a hundred different ways. And I have decided to reclaim my life. I have reclaimed it and fought back against the lies and the limiting beliefs over and over and over again. I have built on that strength by looking at what is true, not what is opinion. And you can too. Excuse five. I can't pursue my dream and still be a good mom, daughter, employee. You can remove the word mom from this excuse and replace it with anything of your choosing. Wife, sister, Christian, friend, fill in the blank. I hate this excuse. Like, it actually pisses me off. Not because you might believe it, but because I did too. Do you know how many years I wasted trying to live my life to please everyone else? Do you know how long I beat myself up because I liked to work when all the other moms I knew wanted to stay home? Most of us will grapple with this, and the vast majority of those who do won't pursue anything that might come at the expense of anyone else's happiness. You want to join a gym, but that would require your husband to watch the baby so you can go work out, and he doesn't like to watch the baby? Oh, shoot. Well, I guess you can't go. Or you want to move to a new city, but your family is super close and your mom will freak out if you're not nearby? Okay, I guess you'll just live forever right where you are. Or you want to use your retirement traveling the world like you always dreamed of, but your daughter was counting on having you nearby to help her with the kids? All right, you better let that vision for your life go. After all, their happiness matters more than yours does, right? They matter more than you do. The only way to be a good mother, daughter, sister, friend, or whatever is to show up for the other parties exactly how they want you to when they want you to. Right? Ladies, you get one chance at this. Literally only one chance at this life. And you have no idea when your chance might be over. 
You cannot waste it living only for everyone else. I don't mean that you should be wholly selfish. I don't mean that you should assume life is only about you and what makes you happy. Part of being in a family or a relationship or a community means showing up for others. The problem is that most women I know don't struggle to show up for others. They struggle to show up for themselves. I was talking with my dad the other day about the idea for this book. I told him that I wanted to write about pursuing and achieving goals. I told him how many women send me notes asking me how to find the courage to do that. He told me to tell you to be selfish. You know what they told me on the first day of class for my PhD? My dad always, always starts any story with a question, knowing full well his audience doesn't know the answer. I used to hate it as a child because I assumed he just liked to prove his superior intellect. As an adult, though, I can look back and see that he was teaching us from a very early age to work through a problem before waiting for someone to tell us the answer. Now, of course, I do the exact same thing to my kids and cringe to imagine what my eight-year-old self would think of it. In any event, I didn't have an answer for him that day. No, Daddy, what did they tell you? They told us to be selfish. They told us that getting a PhD later in life was something you did for yourself and nobody else. They told us that it wouldn't be long before our spouse or our kids or our boss got frustrated by our classes or our homework or how long it takes to write a thesis. They told us if we weren't selfish with this one thing, our dream of having a doctorate, we'd let someone else talk us out of it. I'm going to assume that you spend a good deal of your life thinking about others and caring about others and being a great family member and employee and friend. But I'm going to tell you, at least as far as your goal is concerned, that you're allowed to focus on it even if it means that you'll miss some time with the people you care about. I'm also going to encourage you to ask yourself, just like in the previous chapter, if something is true or if something is opinion, there are two extremely well-known opinions that play deeply into the narrative about what you can and can't be simultaneously. The first is work-life balance. The idea that work and life can ever be perfectly in balance is an opinion. It's the million-dollar question for every working mom. Right, ladies? How do you balance your job and your family? It's a valid question and worth discussing if for no other reason than that it's reassuring to hear other working moms struggle with this too. My thoughts on this topic are really quite strong and I don't mind telling you exactly what I've said on numerous business panels over the last decade. Work-life balance is a myth. More than that, it's a hurtful myth because I don't think anyone actually achieves it, and yet we feel positive that other women somehow have. Someone, somewhere, mentioned it as a possibility, their opinion, mind you, and the media seem to latch on. So when we feel off balance or are struggling to keep all our balls in the air, we assume it's just because we haven't figured out work-life balance. It becomes one more thing we're failing at as moms, 
beyond forgetting it was weird and wacky her day at school and buying the wrong kind of yogurt. Ugh, I detest anything that makes women feel wrong or less than, so allow me to debunk this ridiculous idea. Work-life balance. Its description implies that those two things live in harmony, perfectly divided up on the scale of your life. My work and home life have never, ever been balanced evenly on any level. Even when I was a 17-year-old sandwich maker at the substation in my hometown, even then there were days when a big project at school meant that I couldn't work as many hours or accepting a lucrative Saturday shift, ripe with tip money, meant that I couldn't hang out with my friends. Work and personal life will always battle each other for supremacy because both require your full attention to be successful. It's not bad or wrong, it's just how life works. Sometimes my boys have school activities or doctor's appointments, and I have to leave work to be present for those. Likewise, right now, as I sit holed up at the only desk in our house, in my big boy's room, my entire family is having a grand time downstairs by the pool. I can hear them down there laughing and singing along to pop music. They're drinking LaCroix and living their best lives, and I'm up here writing this book. Pursuing my dream of being an author who encourages other women means that sometimes I will have to miss out on pool time in order to make it happen. The scale is never balanced. It constantly shifts back and forth based on what needs my attention right this second. I think that's real for most of us, no matter what stage of life we're in, and the only way we're going to get past this mythology that some people have it all figured out is to start being honest about what our lives and priorities really look like. Here, I'll go first. Myself. In my early days as a mom and entrepreneur, I wasn't a priority at all. I would run myself ragged, taking care of everyone else, and never once worrying about how it all might affect me. This was a disaster. I got really sick at least once a year. I was always stressed out. I was always struggling with my weight. It was a mess. Then, someone pointed out that I couldn't take care of anyone properly if I didn't first take care of myself. My health and well-being are now my biggest priority. I get eight hours of sleep every night. Yes, eight. Not six or even seven. Eight full hours. I eat well. I drink water by the bucket load. I haven't let Diet Coke touch my lips in over four years. Yes, I'm still addicted to coffee, but we can't win them all. I took up running and get in at least 12 miles a week. I carve out several hours a week for prayer, church, and volunteer work because my faith is extremely important to me. I don't think the goal is ever to be balanced, ladies. I think the goal is to be centered. Centered means that you feel grounded and at peace with yourself. Centered means that you can't be knocked off balance regardless of how chaotic things become. If I prioritize myself and make sure I'm centered, then everything else runs smoothly, even when it's running at a 100 miles an hour. My marriage. I'm sure many parents would naturally list their children as their first priority. 
but my marriage will always be the most important relationship in my life. Dave and I have a weekly date night, and we take an extravagant annual vacation together, wait for it, without our children. When we're at home, we're playing interference with three little boys and our queen bee, Noah Elizabeth. So it's essential that we always get to hang out with each other regularly and act like real live adults. Because we're both so supportive of each other's careers, it can be really easy to start neglecting our relationship, which has happened numerous times over the years. So rather than risk our marriage slipping into an unhealthy place, we've agreed to make each other a priority. We don't want to have a good marriage or even a great one. We want to have an exceptional marriage, and exceptional requires intentionality. My kids. I have four children, Jackson, Sawyer, Ford, and Noah. So even when I'm not at work, I'm always on the go. There's morning routine and school drop-off and dinner, baths, books, and bedtime. Then the weekends, when we run from sports events to birthday parties and back again. That is a picture of what life looks like today with the kids. But let me back up and tell you about the first two years of running my company. I worked like a maniac. I was often in the office by 8 in the morning, which means I was never able to do school drop-off. I got snarky notes from moms at school about missing field trips and bake sales, and I cried myself to sleep about them more nights than I can count. Nobody ever sent snarky notes to my husband for having to work during a field trip, but that's a diatribe for another time. Most evenings, I got home around 7, which means I missed dinner. It was a really chaotic season, but that kind of workload is also part of being an entrepreneur and running a startup. Some people will argue that I lost valuable time with my kids, and I won't disagree. But those three little boys also watched their mom build a company from the ground up. They watched me grow that company to something so big that their daddy came to work there too. They've seen firsthand the power of hard work and dedication, and I'm proud of the example I've set for them. That, for me, in that season, was another way of prioritizing my kids, just with a longer-term vision in mind. My work. I won't pretend that there weren't times when work didn't take up most of my attention. I also won't pretend that those weren't the times that were hardest on my marriage, my health, and my ability to be the kind of mom I want to be. Now that I'm more established in my career, I'm able to get my work done during office hours. Also, being five years into this business means I have the help of an incredible staff, so it doesn't all fall on my shoulders. My work is a priority for sure. But that looks different in my current season than it had to look in past ones. Remember, figuring out how to juggle all the parts of your life in a healthy way is a scale that slides back and forth. Some seasons of your life will require more attention in one area than another, and that's okay. Someone once said it was possible to be in balance, but that's only their opinion. You get to decide whether or not it's true. The other opinion that affects our narratives about what we can and can't be at the same time dives into an area of life that I know won't apply to every woman listening to this, but it will apply to a vast majority, 
and the ones who suffer from it are drowning in it. I want to talk about it. I want us all to be aware that it's happening so we can, as a community, take power away from this insidious thing. Mommy guilt. You guys, mommy guilt is bullshit. There, I said it. I don't know if my editor will even let me keep that in here, but if we're going to hold on to one cuss word in this book, Jessica, let it be that line right there. Mommy guilt, in case you haven't ever experienced it personally, is this gross, horrendous, cancerous thing that lodges itself in your heart and creeps its way to your head where it festers forever unless you actively choose to kill it. Mommy guilt likes to remind you on the regular of all the ways you're failing your children. Some women struggle with guilt on topics like going to work. Others struggle under the weight of guilt associated with everything from wanting time for themselves to not feeding their kids the right kind of blueberries. And I guess if that was the only thing you had to worry about, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But being a mom means there are 967 things to worry about on any given day. So not only are you responsible for someone else's clothes and shelter and dental hygiene, but you're also going to go ahead and beat yourself up for those 967 choices you're making as you're making them and think that this will empower you to be better next time? No way! This is only going to confuse and overwhelm you and zap you of whatever confidence you had in yourself as a mom, which, let's be honest, is tenuous on the best of days. I can already hear the critiques on this one. Well, you told us to be self-aware. You told us we should be honest about the areas where we can improve. You're right. The problem is that mommy guilt isn't about self-awareness. Mommy guilt is about self-destruction. Part of growth in any area of life is a willingness to make changes to improve. But mommy guilt isn't really about improving, and more often than not, it's debilitating. And yet, we go back to it again and again. Hear me when I say this. It doesn't serve you in any way. It doesn't serve your children either. I said something like this recently on a live stream, and a commenter said something like, No, guilt is so important. Feeling guilty is how we know we're doing something wrong. Guilt is God's way of telling us we're making bad choices. Holy crap. No, seriously, that's a load of crap wrapped up and pretending to be holy. I don't care what religion you were raised in, you weren't taught guilt and shame by your Creator. You were taught guilt and shame by people. That means whatever your people thought was shameful is what you learned to be ashamed of. Whatever your family or the influential people in your life thought was something to feel guilty about is what you have guilt about now. Allow me to give you a way too personal example of this. I grew up in the 80s as a Pentecostal preacher's daughter. Suffice it to say, I was not taught to view my sexuality as something good. In fact, I wasn't taught to view my sexuality at all for any reason at any time. That's something I was supposed to save for marriage. 
Nobody told me exactly what I was saving or what I should do with it once I did get married. It's not any great surprise or any great originality to say that I was super uncomfortable getting comfortable with sex. My entire life, nobody ever spoke to me about sex except as this thing that was shameful to give away before a certain time. The problem is that even after that time came, I couldn't let go of the shame I'd learned to associate with it. It took me years of work to get past this, and I'm happy to report that now my sex life with my husband is fantastic, thank you very much, but the shame I felt having sex with my husband in the beginning was very real, and I don't believe for one second that this guilt I was feeling was God telling me sex with my husband was wrong. Guilt and shame are not from God, so please don't allow yourself to assume that your mommy guilt is something divine. Mommy guilt only works to make you question everything you have done, are doing, or might consider doing in the future. Everywhere you look, articles and books and shows suggest this or recommend that. The moms at school only like this brand or that style, and heaven forbid you parent differently than your sister-in-law or how your husband was raised. Stop the madness. Number one, dang it, you are doing your freaking best. The fact that you're experiencing any guilt right now tells me that you care about your children and you're trying You're not always going to be the exact kind of mom you wish you were, even when you're trying your hardest. Today, I was trying to put sunscreen on Noah's chubby cheeks, and she fell backward and bonked the back of her head on the wood floor. Then she cried like the world was ending. You guys, I was trying to put SPF 80 plus sunscreen on her to keep her safe, and I accidentally made her trip over her swim diaper. I was trying my best, and I still somehow managed to suck at it. That's life. That is parenting. When did we pass some law that we're supposed to do this flawlessly? When I was little, we rolled around without seatbelts in the back of a station wagon. Nobody cared about car seats or automobile safety. One of my friend's moms laughs and laughs if you try to talk to her about safe pregnancy practices. Darling, she'll say as she waves her hand in your general direction, it was the 60s. I had a martini every single day during all three of my pregnancies. I mean, what kind of screwed up madman situation was going on back then? We're all doing our best, sis, and beating yourself up when you're trying so hard isn't going to help you do it better next time. You'll be a better mama next month than you were this month. And five years from now, you'll be better still. Two decades from now, you'll horrify some new mother when you tell her the barbaric things you did when your kids were still small. In the meantime... Hopefully, you'll work to improve in all areas of your life, including parenting, but I promise you it doesn't serve you in any way to castigate yourself now. It's possible to pursue something for yourself while simultaneously showing up well for the people you love. It's possible to be a great mother and a great entrepreneur. 
It's possible to be an awesome wife and still want to get together regularly with your girlfriends. It's possible to be this and that. It's possible to decide that you're going to be centered in who you are and what matters most to you and let other people's opinions fall away. Don't buy into the hype or the pressure or the guilt that you've got to be one or the other. Maybe that's true for other people. Maybe that's their opinion. But only you get to decide what's true for you.